Today on episode 9 of the EWAR podcast. Fundraising is so much more than just your pitch deck with Daniel Diepold. Hello and welcome to this episode of the EWAR podcast. I am Lian Burma and this is the space where founders get to share their stories of how they got an idea and turn it into a profitable business. Today's guest is Daniel Diepold. Daniel is the founder and CEO of EWAR. Prior to EWAR, Daniel founded Emoti, Unlimitics, and NewNow. In addition, Daniel founded the Sigma Squared Society, which is the world's largest network of young entrepreneurs. Not only does Daniel build his own companies, he is also an angel investor in 16 tech companies. In total, Daniel has pitched to over 100 investors to raise money for his own startups. Daniel is joining us today to talk about his fundraising journeys and what he learned along the way to hopefully prevent you from making the same mistakes. Daniel, great to have you on the podcast. It's a pleasure. I thought Ivor wouldn't invite me, but I'm very glad they changed their mind and did. How could we not invite our own CEO <laughs> and founder? Great. Well, over 100 investors, that's a lot of investors. Does it ever get easier or does it stay very difficult to keep pitching to them? Yes, to be very honest, it might even be a couple hundred by now. I don't know. Um, And I think it does get easier over time because first of all, you are less nervous. Your first pitch, you know, you just have lots of adrenaline and cortisol in your body. And that sometimes also makes you too jittery and too nervous and you might black out. And I think the likelihood of that happening is just way, way lower as long as you, you know, as you reflect and try to get better after every single pitch. Secondly, I think at one point you really understand what investors want to hear. And that also helps you to create a better pitch. And thirdly, if things go the right way, many founders also become investors and then they can understand uh, how an investor thinks from a first perspective, right? Because they are getting investors and that also makes it easier. So there's lots of reasons it could probably come up with a couple of more that lead to pitching getting easier and easier over time. It's definitely a matter of practice. And what I recommend, especially to first-time founders is to just go out there and pitch and every single time with the right amount of reflection It will get better. That's very good news. I'm happy to hear it actually gets better. But I also hope that our listeners don't have to pitch to over 100 investors before they get there. And hopefully we can just learn something from from your story, like what what you learned along the way. So maybe just diving right in. Can can you take us back to the very first time that you wanted to raise money? What happened? uh, How was your process like? Yes, very happy to do that. So I first wanted to raise money with a deep tech company. I was building. It was called Emoti. We had a fantastic technology that allowed us to derive emotional intelligence proxies from sound waves. And I was just very excited about the technology. And at one point, we figured if we have more money, we can probably develop a way better product before we go to the first customers and present them what we have. And that, I think, first of all, was already the wrong approach because we should have gone to customers way earlier. That is something I believe every entrepreneur learns at one point. But back then, I I didn't do that. So that definitely was a first mistake. I didn't 
validate uh, the technology at all. I was just excited about what it could potentially do, not really thinking about the problem it was solving and who cared about the problem. And as I learned later, we did solve a huge problem and lots of different people encountered all sorts of different problems where our technology would add value. But I had absolutely no clue about all of that um, at the very beginning. Secondly, I just thought any investor is the right investor for us. So I really believed, hey, I just talked to people with money and they will give us money for us to go ahead with our journey. But I had no idea that there's so many different types of investors from family offices to institutional investors, mainly referring to you know, VCs there as well, technically a family office is an institutional investor too, to angel investors, to all sorts of different angel investors, by the way, right? So some angel investors do think like a VC and act like a VC and run their portfolio like a VC and some other angel investors behave more like philanthropists and actually just want to support incredible people. They don't even care much about the financial return. And other investors mostly do it because of personal branding and they just care about how cool you are, right? And I had no idea that all of that matters. So I didn't know the types of investors. And by the way, there's so many more. There's accelerators, governments, non-governmental grants and all sorts of people who could and institutions who could potentially provide money and would I have known the investor landscape and would I have known who the right investors are for me, I would have definitely been able to make a better pitch that suits the right type of investors. I had no idea back then how the landscape looks like and that was a problem. And thirdly, I wasn't able to empathize with the investor. Right. I mentioned that earlier. I just didn't know how investors think and what they want to hear. And I think for founders, it's so important to at least try to think like an investor for a little while and, you know, also criticize other slide decks. And this is where a community of other founders, of peers and so on, is so immensely valuable because you can use their decks and so on for your practice to empathize with investors? What would you criticize in their decks? What would you be worried about? What would make you invest, right? And I absolutely had no idea of that. I didn't know many other founders. So I just assumed, and I think all of my assumptions were wrong about what an investor actually wants to see. And that is definitely something I would do different this time. I would invest way more time into figuring out how an investor actually thinks and uh, way more time in building up that empathy. And I did a couple more mistakes, but I think if you would go into all of them right now, that would already be the entire duration of the podcast. But that's already three very valuable mistakes that we hopefully can help our listeners prevent from making. Maybe maybe about the, the second one first. You talked about uh, any investor could be the right investor. That was your assumption at that time. Mm -hmm. What happened when you reached out to an investor that was not suitable for you? Did you just get a no or did they give you any feedback? Like How did you find out they were not actually suitable for you? Yeah, especially with the not so great investors that I think most founders reach out to early on in their uh, career, you usually don't get a clear no. And that is a huge problem because... As a first-time founder, you are usually very optimistic about people still saying yes. And if it's not a no, it feels like a yes. I would say right now, if it's not a no, or I would more say if it's not a yes, um, it's probably a no. And that is a huge, you know, first-time founder mistake I did uh, that I see a lot of people do. And very experienced investors, they will say no very quickly. 
also as you know respect to the founders and because many of them are serial entrepreneurs but uh, many investors i initially met they're just very bad at saying no and therefore i didn't get many no's and i just thought oh so many people are interested in my uh, you know in my product secondly i didn't follow up with them straight away i think it's really important that you follow up with investors directly after a call i would say within 15 minutes you should send them an email saying thank you and here are the infos you've requested and that means you have to have the infos ready if you need to do put additional work into something, I would still send them an email 15 minutes afterwards and be like, hey, it was great talking. I really enjoyed it. Those are the things I've taken away. I will come back to you within two days with the feedback implemented. I didn't do that, which made it even more unlikely for them to say yes eventually. And thirdly, I didn't even follow up a week after. I was like, hey, what's your response? Did you, you know, come back to me? I just had them all on my list and thought, yeah, eventually they will probably come back to me and say yes. And I just leave them in as potential investors and talk to more people. I should have at one point realized, okay, 20 or something like that is probably enough. Now I should work on getting the no's clear. So what you should do is you should actually get those 20 to give you a clear yes or no then you know what your conversion rate is and then you work yourself to the next one. And I was just opening up new investors without bringing the ones I had in the pipeline actually to a close. So that was a huge problem. Kind of a long answer to talk about, do they just say no or yes? But I believe that's so important. And I would have wished, I would have known this earlier on, that this not clearly saying no still probably means no. That I just didn't get. And then secondly, of course, I had a couple of people telling me no. And then I asked them for feedback. And usually feedback was very subjective. It was very different. And it, it's just so hard as a first-time founder to say, oh, wow, this is this is the pattern that, that is clearly here. It's, it's all about the market. I'm just focusing on a market that is way too small. Sometimes that is the case. But for me, that never was the case. I think most people were talking about customer validation. But I just didn't have the vocabulary to understand that they were all talking about the same thing when they were giving me feedback. That's also why I believe young founders, they should invest lots of time within the space or should ask follow-up questions on feedback to fully understand what the feedback is about. Otherwise, it might seem like investors giving different feedback, even though they're actually saying the same. They're just voicing it in different matters. So yes, I did get lots of no's, but I didn't know they were actual no's. That's that's interesting that you're saying, like, I was okay leaving them open. I can imagine it felt better to have like a potential yes than hearing actually no. Um, is, it, is it something, is it like ego in play as well when you're this early in your startup journey? Yes, I think especially... In the early phases, there is there is a lot of ego involved and you are connecting your own value, the, the way you think about yourself to your success in fundraising. And I also think this is a huge mistake. You should never do this as a founder because once you start making that connection, external events and whatnot will affect your understanding of who you are and how much you are worth and what you know your self-value. And that is just very dangerous. And I see a lot of young founders these days burn out. And I think that is also part of the reason because you are connecting your self-value to, to that kind of success. And that is just that is just a huge mental health risk. And I, I'm not doing this anymore. If I'm, you know, 
in fundraising mode. I just very rationally look at what is the feedback? How can I synthesize it? Is it possible for me right now to work in the feedback? If so, fantastic, I'll do it. If not, I need to either pivot or do something else or talk to even more people until someone believes in me. But there's just an option space that you need to be very rational about and on how to approach it. And bringing yourself too much into the equation, I think is, is really dangerous. And I also see this with a lot of serial entrepreneurs, people who go on and on and on. They're only able to do this because they're detaching themselves from this mental barrier or from this connection that you are making between your self-value and your um, your fundraising success. That's interesting. Do you have any tips on how our listeners can do that? Because I can imagine it's not super easy because you worked on it, right? You're showing your baby to these people that might help your baby grow. And then they're like, oh, no thanks. How do you detach your ego from, from this? I think, first of all, it's a numbers game. Um, there's lots of evidence that shows the more we increase a certain basket size of whatever it is, the more objective we will become, right? Objectivity in, in some philosophy streams is just an aggregation of lots of subjective values. And as subjective values, you know, the amount of subjective values approaches infinity, you arrive at the objective. And I think that is the same with, with fundraising, right? The, the moment you're talking to your first investor, that's kind of all that counts. It's your first pitch and so much is on the line. And uh, of course, your ego is on the line as well. And, you know, you're thinking about everything and, if you are getting a no, it's it's all about you, yourself, and so on. But then once you've done it 150 times, you've seen all sorts of responses. You've seen no's, you've seen yeses, you've seen maybes. You just have so much more context to relate the answer to. And that context alone helps you to detach yourself from the, the egotistical part of, you know, of, of fundraising. So to me, the first thing you can do is you know, to just make it a numbers game and talk to as many people as possible. The second thing I believe really helps is all sorts of meditative practices because many of them focus on you just observing, observing yourself from a different perspective, kind of like you're watching yourself like a third party and you disconnecting from you know what you believe you as a human are and your, your consciousness, if you will. And that, that just helps. Um, there's uh, lots of studies that show the value of meditation and mental health. And I think one of the reason, uh, reasons for that is, is exactly this aspect of meditation. And many entrepreneurs I know do it. I don't know if that is the main reason of them detaching themselves from you know just thinking too much about their ego when, when fundraising. But that is definitely something that helps too. And thirdly, I think it's really your mental model of, of fundraising is your mental model. I'm doing this for myself. And how can I show more people how awesome I are? Or is your mental model? I want to make an impact in this world. And I just need to understand feedback. And feedback is just an opportunity of growth in order to have this impact eventually. And if everyone says me, it tells me no, this time, maybe with my second venture, I will be able to already find something that avoids all of the mistakes I did with the first one. And if that doesn't work, I will have again learned new things and will use that for my third venture and whatnot. If you're all about making an impact and just using feedback in the best way possible, I think you will naturally start to detach yourself from that because it's it's not about yourself. 
it is about making an impact and creating a company that matters. And if that is your mental model, I think eventually it will be very, very easy for you to take yourself out of the equation. I love that. It's not about the baby I'm building right now, but it's about the impact this baby can have on the future. And if it's a different baby because this one's not great, we'll make a different one. I like that idea of just being married to the the impact you're going to have or the, how you change the world rather than this specific solution you're working on. Yes, fully agreed. Fully agreed. And I see this with lots of founders. And personally, I also have to say, I, I prefer investing in founders that think company first and not ego first. And you usually find that out in a, in a small meeting already. Yeah, because like we mentioned in the introduction, you have been uh, being an angel investor in over 16 companies by now. How do you, if, if you're talking to these potential um, companies that you might invest in, how do you find out if they're company first or Maybe ego first. What do you ask them? Great question. I think you can never find out perfectly. Some people are just very, very good in telling you a story that is not true. Over time, you usually always find out, but sometimes you find out too late, in my opinion. You can just minimize the risk. And that is usually in the in the answer people give you, right? So the first thing you hear a lot of people say is, so let's break it down, right? The first thing I think that already gives you a, a great feeling is the ratio of I to we. So those people who have a higher proportion of I's, I did this, I did that. I was in this panel and then I was in this news article and I built this company compared to we built this. We as a team figured out the company did whatever, right? That proportion already will give you a feeling of how people think. So if they say I all the time, it's probably for their ego and they're probably very much in their ego. So this is something I noticed. I noticed a lot. And um, secondly, what I notice a lot is when I ask people about their vision and people who are mostly egotistical about building a business, their vision is usually to make an exit or to, you know, to, to build a unicorn for the sake of building a unicorn. And it's never the first answer they give you when you talk about vision. But when you talk about vision and then you ask them why at least five times, then you usually get a very honest answer. And that is when you find out what is really motivating people. And that's also something you find out during just having a conversation that, that is seemingly about vision. It's mostly about what, what is really in it for the person? What, what do they want to build here, right? And yeah, so, so those are questions I usually ask. In addition to that, of course, some people build incredible companies because of their ego and they're still great investments and they make a great financial return. So, so that also exists, right? It's just a personal preference I have. I personally resonate more with founders who are company first. And I think if you would run a study, on average, they would be more successful than people who are ego first. Of course, many founders still, even though on average, the company first guys perform better, they still are very successful just because of their ego. And there's also some research that suggests that many founders who are successful, they went through traumatic experiences and they have to compensate. And it is about their ego. And that is also something that can be an immense drive. And I know other investors I've sometimes even co-invested with who say, I look more for people who had these traumatic experiences in the past and that are trying to compensate something because they just have more energy than other people who don't have a trauma, right? And that is just a, a question of your personal philosophy. For me, it's a different one. And I also think about every investment 
I do in terms of, you know, this is this is my money, this is my choice. I sometimes move away from solely the financial return of, of what I'm doing here. I'm not angel investing purely for the financial return. So I'm having all of these structures in my decision making that might not even be what other investors do. And that brings me to an important point I want to make here, which is every investor has a different subjective opinion of what you as a founder should do. And you will never be able to make everyone happy and trying to please all of them will create huge problems, right? If you're trying to please me and other people who are more looking for an egotistical person, because they may be like this themselves, will just create lots of different expectations in the investor pool. What is much more important is that you just yourself and you find investors who respect you as who you are, as yourself, and support you because of who you are and because they resonate with you. And you rather talk to twice or three times as many investors, but in the end, end up with people who really want to support you because they like you as a person. It kind of ties back to the point that you mentioned earlier, like you need to empathize with, with your investor and know who you're talking to, to tailor your pitch. But I think it's also working the other way around, like you need to find an investor that fits you as a as a founder. How do you find out if a investor would fit you as a founder? Like, like you just mentioned some things that you look for in in a in a startup pitch or in a founder itself. How can I if I've never I I'm not listening to this podcast? How could you find that out about you? Is it just having a lot of conversations, or do other people know in the market? How does this work? There's lots of different answers on different dimensions here. I think first of all, the question is. Just from the investment structure, who is the right investor in terms of how do they invest? What is their investment horizon? A VC wants to see a company that can do 100x within a quick amount of time, usually seven years, because that's when they need to give the money back to their LPs, who are the investors who invest in their fund, uh, enabling them to invest in the first place. A government mostly has an intention from, you know, what is a, what is a certain type of infrastructure, whatever we, we want to build that is important for society. In general, an angel investor might solely invest philanthropically because they want to support something that is a good cause. And others want to see a financial return, but maybe on a completely different time horizon. Maybe 20 years is okay for them. Family offices might have an even longer time horizon as long as the value is created because they are run by families over generations and they can invest in something that maybe returns huge amounts of money after 20, 25 years. And then again, all sorts of accelerators and, and other forms of non governmental grants have different you know motivations and time horizons and so on so the first thing i think that you need to find out as a founder is what is my model what 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 kind of company do i want to build and is this a company that can have a fast exit if so who are the buyers who are the people um, who are eventually investing is private equity investing at one point and this is something for for secondaries for the um, vcs that invested early on and so on or am i building something that is more bootstrapped and i might only need one investment round but it will never yield the returns and i don't want to sell this company i just want to have dividends and angel investors are usually very fine with dividends not everyone but many are while family offices for example, will be fine with the two VCs won't be, you know, happy about dividends. They want a hundred X and that won't happen with dividends. So, so that is something you need to figure out first of all. 
then once you figured out what your right target group is, let's say angel investors, first of all, and you need to understand what stage are you at? Are you just pitching an idea? And then you, again, have different kinds of people giving you different amounts of money, depending on the stage you're at. If, if you're at idea stage, you are in, in startup lingo at pre-seed or even pre-pre-seed, as many people say now. So you need to talk to people who are ready for that kind of risk and they will give you lower valuations, but it's still possible to raise money. If you're talking to a venture capital firm that does series A plus investments, that is a, a waste of time. And if you already have traction and customers and you're making money, then you need to um, talk to different kinds of investors. And so that is very important to know your timeline as well. Then thirdly, um, you want to understand how you personally resonate with the investors. What are your values? What are their values? And what I've realized, if there is no overlap in values between investors, this is a huge problem, especially if you are an impact-first guy and your investors are money-first guys. And at one point, the investors have a significant stake in your cap table, which means they own maybe as much equity as you do then they will force you to make money and you want to make impact and it will be a huge struggle and you will probably invest most of your time in managing that huge struggle than actually making sure to just build a business that matters. So you need those alignments. Uh, that is something I wanted to clarify before answering, well, how do you find them? And then once you know what you are actually looking for in terms of timeline, value alignment, structure, and there's, there's many more dimensions, right? Once you have found out which ones are important to you, you just ask questions and you're very, very blunt about what you're looking for. So just ask investors to do diligence with investors as well. Who are they? Which companies did they invest in? What's the value they provide? How do they behave? How are they behaving when they're in your board? How are they behaving in critical decision points and so on? And that is something I would recommend every founder should do to, to really, really drill down on who the investor is because it's easier to kick out a co-founder than an investor. Once the investor has invested, they are in your cap table. You can't throw them out. A co-founder is usually vested and has a different set of motivations. So it's way easier to get rid of a co-founder than getting rid of an investor. And it's already very hard to get rid of a co-founder, right? So you are marrying your investors. It's really like a marriage proposal. You might be together for the next 10 to 15 years. And if there's no alignment, if you didn't ask the questions, if you didn't do the due diligence, that is just a huge mistake. So I really think asking lots of questions and interviewing your investors well is absolutely crucial. And that's the easiest way to find out. Got it. We've been talking about so many things already and we haven't even touched upon what people usually think about when they raise money, which is the pitch deck. We've only been talking about how to find a suitable investor, how to empathize with them. Maybe we can just continue on that point. Maybe that's it seems like a very important part of fundraising. I often hear you talk about the timing of investor outreach as well. Like you need to empathize with them, you need to find the right one, but also when to reach out. Can, can you say more about that? Yes, absolutely. What many people do is they just create a Sequoia-like pitch deck and then raise. And that really depends, right? Do you need the money now? And do you have a credible story of why you need the money? And for a deep tech company, this is completely different to an e-commerce. An e-commerce can probably easily generate the amount 
of traction you need to raise with an e-commerce company, which is you want to show a little bit of monthly recurring revenue compared to a deep tech company that probably needs one or two years of R&D maybe even just to, to get off the ground, right? And for, for those two examples, to, to stay with them for a little bit, it's already a completely different pitch deck you need to create, a completely different story you need to tell, a completely different investors you need to talk to. So when is the right time to reach out? I would always say when there's no other way of growing in the pace you want to grow. So if you are an e-commerce and you are onboarding your first products, probably you don't need an investor because what should you do with all of that money? You need to build the foundation first and just make sure you are having lots of products on there. And then at one point, it'll be about logistics and hiring more people. And that's when you should raise money because that's drastically going to increase the speed. For a deep tech company, that point is way earlier because you probably won't be even able to finance yourself and your team that is necessary to build the product before you have um, you have raised a round. So that you really want to raise with an idea already. And then also the story you tell is usually very different. And take the car. I always ask myself, if Henry Ford or whomever... Um, it's a bad example because, you know, the car existed before, but whomever would pitch, if they would basically pitch the car in a VC case, that's why I said uh, Henry Ford, right? Because he really took it to the next level of how he was building the car and where he was innovating and so on. How would you, how would they pitch it? And I think they wouldn't talk about why the problem matters so much. That's not what you do in a deep tech company. You know that transportation is a thing. And if you get that technology to work, it's amazing. However, the question is, can this guy actually build a car in a way that spreads globally and sells cars all over the world? So all you want to tell investors is, hey, I have an incredible story here that or an incredible plan that helps me to build this car. First of all, yes, I can build it. This is my team. We have all the expertise necessary to build a car. Secondly, I can distribute it so that people all over the world will start buying it. That it makes sense to have a car whenever you need one is, is absolutely clear, right? Everyone knows that. While for companies that are doing something a little bit more mundane that is not necessarily deep tech and solving something in an entirely new way, it's much more about why does this problem even matter? Do people care about this? And here my question would be, do we need another e-commerce? And then it gets really tricky. Is this about a new trend, a new hype phenomenon? Is this an e-commerce about veganism, whatnot, uh, that somehow found out a way of shipping super fresh food within three hours in the highest quality so that everyone gets you know, access to, to vegan ingredients for their own cooking in no time. And that makes sense because no one else was able to pull that off logistically or whatnot. Um, and this is why the problem really matters. That is where probably much of the conversation with an investor will evolve around. So suddenly you need to tell a completely different story. And I would always ask myself, why do I need that money? What is the thing I need to prove right now? And that's when you figure out, you know, how to build your pitch deck and what the story is you want to share in your pitch deck. And maybe a last note on pitch decks. Usually I always think about three things. When I look at a pitch deck, the first thing is, is there a problem solution fit? 
as I said, for a deep tech company, that's usually very quickly answered. But for all non-deep tech investments I do, that is a huge discussion. Do people really have this problem? And is your solution suited to solving that problem? Next thing is unfair advantage. If everyone finds out that this is the biggest opportunity ever tomorrow, why will you survive and no one else? What is your advantage that you have that no one else out there can copy? And that is sometimes the expertise of the team, sometimes a very unique approach you found, something you've patented, um, whatever it is, it needs to be somewhat unfair and unique. And thirdly, who's the team? Is the team able to build that solution? And is the team resilient enough to do it for the next five to 10 years and encounter all sorts of incredible hardship and still continue? Because hands on the table, most founders encounter moments where they will be very, very close to bankruptcy. Most founders I know in my network, they can share stories around this. And some people will quit while other, others won't, right? And what investors probably want to hear, what I want to hear is how motivated are you to solve this problem? If you are close to bankruptcy, if you have to fire 20 people in one day, will you do it and continue just to have your venture survive? Or will this be too hard for you? And you just declare bankruptcy, right? And that is, those are the three things I usually want to see in a pitch deck. But the story of how those three relate together is so different depending on the venture, depending on the time frame. So it's very, very hard to give a generic answer here. Yeah, that, that's clear from your story. It, it sounds like just taking a pitch deck template and just filling in some, some information is not going to do it. You really need to think about what is the problem that you're solving? What is your unfair advantage? Um, how does your team fit into it? It doesn't sound like just a generic template is going to do that for you. It won't. There are some great it's templates. Yes. <laughs> Sequoia, Kawasaki, and so on. You know, they've put some templates out there, but they will never be your answer. They're a good starting point, but at the end of the day, it's a question of how you design your deck in your unique way. So I fully agree. I like that. Maybe one final question before we close this off, if there is one thing you hope our listeners take away from this story, what is it? What should they never forget? The most important thing when fundraising to me is that investors are all different. They all want to hear different things from you and staying true to yourself and attracting those investors that fit to your story while telling it reasonably that means talking openly about the challenges you have, talking openly about the assumptions you have made and not lying to anyone and being like, hey, I don't know, but this is why I need your money. I, I want to find out while staying true to yourself. That is the key point to me. Telling a reasonable story, not an incredible story, not the best story in the world, a reasonable story while clearly showing the assumptions, while clearly showing everything that might go wrong and being realistic while at the same time staying the most authentic version of yourself, I think that's in the end what makes a great pitch. Yes, there needs to be vision. And yes, you need to show how this will potentially change the world. However, if you do it in an unreasonable way, everyone will pick it up. So having a conversation with an investor is not the typical sales you do. It's, it's really about understanding what you need that money for and just reasonably explaining that story. 
of you know why you're having this conversation right now and i feel so many people they just they go into fundraising mode and they're suddenly in pitching mode and then it's all about the best perfect story and there's no problems and you can ship next week potentially and there's a billion dollar market and no one else is doing it at the moment neither direct or indirect competition and every investor picks that up every smart investor will immediately see that you're exaggerating it's about giving them the feeling that you are confident that you're true to yourself and that you have a reasonable story and that is something i wished i would have realized earlier in my career i'm now talking about lots of problems in my pitches and I have the feeling I'm getting more money just because I'm more open and more transparent. So if people take anything away, I hope it's that. I love that answer. I think investors are very smart people and they are they know that they're taking a risk, right? By betting on your company. And so they want to know that you also see those risks. Fully agreed. Fully agreed. This was fun. Thanks, Leon. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for joining the podcast. And uh, hopefully we can interview another you another time. You have a lot of stories to tell. <laughs> I hope so as well. It'll be my pleasure. This was Leon Worma interviewing Daniel Diepold about his insights into fundraising. I hope you learned as much as I did today. Thank you for listening.